तदेकं स्मरामस्तदेकं भजामः तदेकं जगत्साक्षिरूपं नमामः सदेकं निधानं निरालंबमीशं भवांबोधिपोतं शरण्यं व्रजामः ओम शांति 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 On that alone do we meditate that alone do we worship to that alone the witness of the universe do we bow to that one who is our sole eternal support the self-existent lord the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara do we come for refuge om peace 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 good morning and happy mother's day and happy shankara jayanti today is the also the day we celebrate the birthday of shankaracharya so ideally we would we might speak on mother today or on shankaracharya but i've decided to speak of about peace pilgrim who was on the one hand we can think of her as a mother and on the other hand she was a practical advaitin i consider it a privilege to introduce her to those of you who are not familiar with her and i think uh, you will enjoy uh, hearing her beautiful life and teachings peace pilgrim was a unique individual an american sage who wandered over the north american continent for nearly 30 years spreading her message of peace and inspiring thousands of americans and canadians and mexicans with her simple life and teaching sri ramakrishna used to say all jackals howl alike the illumined sages he meant that the illumined sages the mystics speak the same language no matter what tradition they come from the peace pilgrim was such an illumined sage who attained great heights of spirituality without practicing any particular religious tradition she had no human guru she was not christian or jewish or muslim or hindu or buddhist yet she realized the truth that is embodied in all these traditions one of her biographers writes hearing her message was like hearing any one of the world's great religions those who were christian were sure she preached the beliefs of jesus christ those who were jewish felt she represented the way of yahweh Buddhists, Baha'is and Jains were sure she spoke their religions and those who were Muslim were certain that she preached the teachings of Islam. So we shall turn to mainly to her own words which were collected by her friends after her death and put into a book form called Peace Pilgrim her life and in her own words. And we shall find how closely her teachings concur with the teachings of vedanta 
and how her life conforms to the ideal of a wandering sannyasin, or we should say sannyasini, a homeless parivrajaka, a wanderer roaming about, rejoicing in the glory of the self, the glory of the divine. When I first saw the book about her, this is the book, and we have copies available, I thought she must be a kind of crackpot or eccentric because she's walking here in this blue outfit, blue trousers, a blue shirt, a blue tunic, and written across the front in big letters, Peace Pilgrim. And in a way, perhaps she was a kind of crackpot in the sense that Sri Ramakrishna would say, you roam about in search of lust and gold like a madman. Now be a little mad for God. Let people say, this man has lost his head for God. So Peace Pilgrim was like that. She had lost her head for God. Her life was utterly dedicated or consecrated to the divine and to the cause of peace. So she would say about herself, a pilgrim is a wanderer with a purpose. A pilgrimage can be to a place, that's the best known kind, but it can also be for a thing. Mine is for peace, and that is why I am a peace pilgrim. My pilgrimage covers the entire peace picture, peace among nations, peace among groups, peace within our environment, peace among individuals, and the very, very important inner peace, which I talk about most often, because that is where peace begins. Something very uh, important that she understood, that we won't find peace without until we find peace within. So she emphasized very much finding peace within and knew that as more people get peace within, that we will find more peace without as well. She said, In the Middle Ages, the pilgrims went out as the disciples were sent out, without money, without food, without adequate clothing, and I know that tradition. I have no money. I do not accept any money on my pilgrimage. I belong to no organization. There is no organization backing me. I own only what I wear and carry. There is nothing to tie me down. I am as free as a bird soaring in the sky. I walk until given shelter, fast until given food. I don't ask. It is given without asking. Aren't people good? She would say this very often. Aren't people good? There is a spark of good in everybody. No matter how deeply it may be buried, it is there. It is waiting to govern your life gloriously. I call it the God-centered nature or the divine nature. Jesus called it the kingdom of God within. So it's truly amazing to me to think how in this country she walked alone, completely fearless, thousands and thousands of miles all over this continent for nearly 30 years without a home, without a penny to her name, never even asking for food or shelter, owning only the clothes on her back 
and a few items in her pockets. Just a comb, a folding toothbrush, a pen, a few unanswered letters, a map, and some printed leaflets of her message. Working tirelessly for the uplift of humanity. And she never went for more than three or four meals without food and was equally comfortable sleeping on a bed if offered or in a bus station or a train station or alongside the road in the grass or under a tree. So we recognize here the ideal also of the wandering sannyasin of India. And I am reminded of many of the verses in Swami Vivekananda's Song of the Sannyasin. I'll read out one. Few only know the truth. The rest will hate and laugh at thee, great one. But pay no heed. Go thou, the free, from place to place, and help them out of darkness, Maya's veil. Without the fear of pain or search for pleasure, go beyond them both, Sannyasin bold. Say, Om Tat Sat Om. So such was Peace Pilgrim, an awakener, striving to awaken us from the sleep of ignorance and the nightmare of violence to the sunrise of divine peace. We could call her a Jivan Mukta, a liberated while living. She said, it is my mission as a pilgrim to act as a messenger expressing spiritual truths. It is a task which I accept joyfully, and I desire nothing in return, neither praise nor glory, nor the glitter of silver and gold. I simply rejoice to be able to follow the whisperings of a higher will. Peace Pilgrim began her pilgrimage in 1953. World War II had ended just a few years before. The Korean War was raging at that time, and nuclear weapons were threatening the annihilation of the human race. So also it was the era of McCarthy and fear and suspicion in this country. So at this critical time in history, Peace Pilgrim began her pilgrimage. She said, Yes, it was most certainly a time for a pilgrim to step forward because a pilgrim's job is to rouse people from apathy and make them think. When she started her her pilgrimage, she took the name of Peace Pilgrim. Just as a sannyasin takes a new name at the time of sannyasa and doesn't discuss the old name, or the old life. So Peace Pilgrim would not tell of her life before the pilgrimage. She would not give her previous name. Her name was Peace Pilgrim. She would say, There was a time when I attained inner peace, when I died, utterly died to myself. I have since renounced my previous identity. It is dead and should not be resurrected. Don't inquire of me, Ask about my message. It is not important to remember the messenger. Just remember the message. Who am I? It matters not that you know who I am. It is of little importance. This clay garment is one of a penniless pilgrim journeying in the name of peace. 
It is what you cannot see that is so very important. I am one who is propelled by the power of faith. I bathe in the light of eternal wisdom. I am sustained by the unending energy of the universe. This is who I really am. I now know myself to be a part of the infinite cosmos, not separate from other souls or God. So it is clear that the old connection that to the name of her birth and to her body, she called it a garment of clay, were completely broken, and she was rather fully identified with the divine. This is also the message of the Upanishads, Tattvamasi, thou art that. And seeing the divine within all, she strove to call out the indwelling spirit in all, in all whom she met. She says, it was in 1953 that I felt guided or called or motivated to begin my pilgrimage for peace in the world, a journey undertaken traditionally. The tradition of pilgrimage is a journey undertaken on foot and on faith, prayerfully and at an opportunity to contact people. I wear a lettered tunic in order to contact people. It says, Peace Pilgrim on the front. I feel that's my name now. It emphasizes my mission instead of me. And on the back, it says 25,000 miles on foot for peace. The purpose of the tunic is merely to make contacts for me. Constantly, as I walk along the highways and through the cities, people approach me and I have a chance to talk with them about peace. She started counting miles in 1953. At first, the back of her tunic said, walking coast to coast for peace. And then the message gradually changed. Some of the different messages were walking 10,000 miles for world disarmament. Finally, she had walked 25,000 miles, and she thought, that's enough. She didn't need to count them anymore. So she fixed her message at 25,000 miles on foot for peace. That was in 1964. It took her 11 years to cover 25,000 miles. But she kept, she lived till 1981, and she kept walking. So she must have walked 50,000 miles, maybe more, over the course of the years. And you can see some films of her taken by various television interviewers. She's a very quick walker with a very wonderful bounce to her step and a smile on her face, filled with energy, divine energy. Like traditional pilgrims and monks, she adopted this special dress to signify her commitment and, as she says, to make her contacts for her. So people would naturally be very curious to see a grandmotherly, white-haired lady walking down the road with such a message on her tunic that spring in her steps and smile on her lips and that light shining in her eyes. She brought her message to every state of America, every province of Canada and parts of Mexico. She visited every town of at least 10,000 population and she spoke in homes, churches, schools and universities and was interviewed by countless reporters for newspapers radio, and television. Thus, many, many people came in contact with her and her teachings. What 
is her message? She said, With me I carry always my peace message. This is the way of peace. Overcome evil with good, falsehood with truth, and hatred with love. That's her me- that was her message. So simple and yet so difficult to put into practice. This is the way of peace. Overcome evil with good, falsehood with truth, and hatred with love. There is nothing new about this message, she says. There is nothing new about this message except the practice of it. And the practice of it is required not only in the international situation, but also in the personal situation. I believe that the the situation in the world is a reflection of our own immaturity. We are reminded of Buddha's teaching. This is the same teaching of Buddha, that hatred can never be overcome by hatred, but only by love. Peace Pilgrim would say, It is hard for people to understand that all war is bad and self-defeating. People in their immaturity attempt to overcome evil with more evil, and that multiplies the evil. Only good can overcome evil. Love is the greatest power on earth. It conquers all things. One in harmony with God's law of love has more strength than an army. For one need not subdue an adversary. An adversary can be transformed. The great spiritual teachers transformed their adversaries with love. We can think of Buddha and Angulimala. Angulimala was a dacoit who used to wear a, a mala of Angulis, a mala of the fingers, a, a necklace of the fingers of his victims, Angulimala, who was transformed by Buddha. He came to kill Buddha and was transformed by his, we can say, his overwhelming personality of love. Sri Chaitanya transformed the two ruffians, Jagai and Madhai. There's an interesting incident in the life of Sri Ramakrishna. One of his disciples, Yogin Ma, who was, uh, became later an intimate and constant companion of the Holy Mother, uh, had invited Sri Ramakrishna to her home but her brother didn't like Sri Ramakrishna at all and engaged a ruffian named Manmata, who was well-known. He was the leader of a, ba- a group of ruffians, and he engaged this Manmata to frighten off Sri Ramakrishna and, who knows, maybe give him a few blows if necessary. Well, after seeing Sri Ramakrishna and hearing just a few words, he fell down at Sri Ramakrishna's feet, began to weep, and said, My Lord, I am guilty. Please forgive me utterly transformed by the magic touch of Sri Ramakrishna. Later he developed a deep longing for God and practiced intense spiritual practices, intense sadhana. So Peace Pilgrim also transformed people. She faced a few tests, as she called them. One of them I'd like to relate. She went hiking with a disturbed teenager. This teenager was quite disturbed. He even was known to beat his mother, beat his own mother. And no one else was willing to go with him, but he wanted to go on a hike. So Peace Pilgrim agreed. And everything was all right until a thunderstorm came up, and somehow he went mad. Hearing the thunderstorm, he got frightened and 
he came at Peace Pilgrim and began to hit her. And she, she says, Suddenly he went off the beam and came for me, hitting at me. I didn't run away, although I guess I could have. He had a heavy pack on his back. But even while he was hitting me, I could only feel the deepest compassion toward him. How terrible to be so psychologically sick that you would be able to hit a defenseless old woman. I bathed his hatred with love, even while he hit me. As a result, the hitting stopped. He said, You didn't hit back. Mother always hits back. The delayed reaction because of his disturbance had reached the good in him. Oh, it's there, no matter how deeply it is buried. And he experienced remorse and complete self-condemnation. What are, a few, what are a few bruises on my body in comparison with the transformation of a human life? To make a long story short, he was never violent again. He is a useful person in this world today. So Peace Pilgrim also was a, a transformer of souls. What strikes us very strongly in Peace Pilgrim's personality is this perfect accord between her words and her deeds. She was a hundred percent consistent. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, let there be no theft in the chamber of your heart. He meant that there should be no hypocrisy. We feel we ought to tell the truth all the time, but still somehow once in a while a little lie will slip out. We may take a resolution to go on a strict diet, but somehow once in a while we slip off the, off the diet. Our lips and hearts are not quite at one, but not Peace Pilgrim. She said, I have said that I will walk until given shelter and fast until given food, remaining a wanderer until mankind has learned the way of peace. This was one of her vows, and she did. She never asked for food or shelter. She wouldn't accept money. She said she wouldn't accept money. She never accepted it. If people sent her money, which happened on occasion, she would use it for postage for her correspondence. She vowed that she would not accept more than she needed as long as others had less than they needed. Thus she brought her life down to what she called need level, and she followed this to the last day of her life. And she practiced this precept, overcome evil with good, falsehood with truth, and hatred with love. She walked her talk to the very letter. So we may wonder, how did a young woman named Mildred Norman, born in a small town of New Jersey on a chicken farm in 1906, become peace pilgrim? How did the transformation take place? Fortunately, Peace Pilgrim did discuss some of the factors that led to her transformation as a guidance for other seekers. She remembers in her childhood, I feel sure I was being prepared for the pilgrimage when I read the golden rule in history, do unto others what you would have others do unto you, expressed in a lot of different ways, and pointing out that every culture had one. It got an inner confirmation from me, 
It affected my entire life. I have it in my life today with my little saying, if you want to make peace, you must be peaceful. Then she describes two very important discoveries she made. In the first place, she says, I discovered that making money was easy. I had been led to believe that money and possessions would ensure me a life of happiness and peace of mind. So that was the path I pursued. In the second place, I discovered that making money and spending it foolishly was completely meaningless. I knew that this was not what I was here for, but at that time I didn't know exactly what I was here for. It was really the realization that money and things would not make me happy that got me started on my preparation for the pilgrimage. You may wonder how in the world I got involved with money and things in the first place, but you see, we are taught these sets of opposites which are extremely confusing. Here, Peace Pilgrim points out two opposites that we are all taught in this world. She was quite a stylish young woman. There are some pictures of her wearing fancy dress and all that. So she had this interest at first. And then she had this realization. She says, on the one hand, these are the two confusing opposites. On the one hand, I was trained to believe that I should be kind and loving and never hurt anybody, which is fine. On the other hand, I was trained to believe that if so ordered, it is indeed honorable to maim and kill people in war. They even give medals for it. Now, that one did not confuse me. I never believed there was any time under any circumstances when it was right for me to hurt anybody. But the other set of opposites confused me for a while. I was trained to be generous and unselfish, and at the same time, trained to believe that if I wanted to be successful, I must get out there and grab more than my share of this world's goods. These conflicting philosophies, which I had gathered from my childhood environment, confused me for some time. But eventually, I uprooted this false training. I think we can, we can all feel the truth of these two opposing ideas. It's really a confusion and a contradiction. So after much seeking, Peace Pilgrim came to a point of conversion, a point which comes in the life of every seeker when the heart opens and the veils obstructing our experience of the divine are rent, at least for a time. She says, As I looked about the world, so much of it impoverished, I became increasingly uncomfortable about having so much while my brothers and sisters were starving. Finally, I had to find another way. The turning point came when, in desperation, and out of a very deep seeking for a meaningful way of life, I walked all one night through the woods. I came to a moonlit glade and prayed. I felt a complete willingness, without any reservations, to give my life, to dedicate my life to service. Please use me, I prayed to God, and a great peace came over me.
I tell you, it's a point of no return. After that, you can never go back to completely self-centered living. So this was Peace Pilgrim's turning point. When the seeking becomes intense and single-minded, then a way comes, opens up, a way opens up. She makes an interesting observation. There's a great deal of difference, she says, between willing to give your life and actually giving your life. For Peace Pilgrim, it took 15 years of preparation and inner seeking before she was ready to start her pilgrimage. She said, it took the living quite a while to catch up with the believing, but finally it did. And when it did, a progress began which never ended. As I lived up to the highest light I had, higher and higher light came to me. I love this phrase. It took the living quite a while to catch up with the believing. That's what we also face. We have to somehow get our living to catch up with our believing. But it does catch up. Finally it did, she says. The living does catch up to the believing. And then a progress begins which never ends, she says. During these 15 years of preparation, or sadhana, making the living catch up with the believing, there were a number of steps Peace Pilgrim took. She calls them steps to inner peace. And she has described them in some detail. I'd like to have a look, I'd like to go through these steps. She names 12 steps. Though she says that's a somewhat arbitrary number, that number could be expanded or contracted, it's just a framework she developed as a way of talking about the subject. Also, she says these steps are not necessarily taken in any particular order. And she makes an interesting point. Since steps towards spiritual advancement are taken in such varied order, most of us can teach one another. So we can all learn from one another because we, have, we are taking different steps at different times. Her 12 steps fall in three categories, for preparations, for purifications, and for relinquishments. So her first preparation is to take a right attitude to life. She says, this means stop being an escapist. Stop being a surface liver who stays right in the froth of the surface. Be willing to face life squarely and get down beneath the surface of life where the verities and realities are to be found. And she also mentions in relation to this that problems, when we have problems in our lives, that's how we grow when we face our problems. She never would call things in her life problems, but only Opportunities, opportunities for growth. Her second preparation has to do with bringing our lives into harmony with the laws that govern this universe. Insofar as we are able to understand and bring our lives into harmony with these laws, our lives will, our lives will be in harmony. Insofar as we disobey these laws, we create difficulties for ourselves by our disobedience. If we are art of harmony through ignorance, we suffer somewhat. But 
if we know better and are still out of harmony, then we suffer a great deal. This is really the Vedantic principle of dharma, living according to the spiritual laws. Swami Vivekananda puts it this way. He says, Just as the law of gravitation existed before its discovery and would exist if all humanity forgot it, so it is with the laws that govern the spiritual world. The moral, ethical, and spiritual relations between soul and soul and between individual spirits and the father of all spirits were there before their discovery and would remain even if we forgot them. So what are these laws? I think we know what they are. The problem is that we don't practice them. Peace Pilgrim says, There are some well-known, little understood, and seldom practiced laws that we must live by if we wish to find peace within or without. Included are the laws that evil can only be overcome by good, that only good means can attain a good end, that those who do unloving things hurt themselves spiritually. Her third preparation she describes as uh, having to do with something which is unique for every human life, because every one of us has a special place in the life pattern, and no two people have exactly the same part to play in God's plan. There is a guidance which comes from within to all who will listen. Through this guidance, each one will feel drawn to some part in the scheme of things. This is... uh, just like the idea of swadharma we have in the Gita, that we must live and work according to our nature, that there is a calling which is right for us. Each person has a unique place, a unique path in life, which we can call swadharma, one's own dharma. Now, how to discover this? If we don't know what it is, how do we discover it? Peace Pilgrim says, If you do not yet know where you fit, I suggest that you try seeking it in receptive silence. I used to walk amid the beauties of nature, just receptive and silent, and wonderful insights would come to me. You begin to do your part in the life pattern by doing all of the good things you feel motivated toward, even though they are just little good things at first. You give these priority in your life, over all the superficial things that customarily clutter human lives. And what she personally did, she said, every morning I thought of God and thought of things I might do that day to be of service to God's children. I looked at every situation I came into to see if there was anything I could do there to be of service. I did as many good things as I could each day not forgetting the importance of a pleasant word and a cheery smile. I prayed about things that seemed too big for me to handle, and right prayer motivates to right actions. Her fourth preparation is the simplification of life. She says to bring inner and outer well-being, psychological and material well-being into harmony in your life. This is simplification of life. For her, this was manifested in her 
feeling that she could not accept more than she needed while others had less than they need. So her life was brought down to need level. Now, Peace Pilgrim never expected us to live at her level of need. She understood that people have different kinds of needs and her need level is much less than ours will be. She says, for instance, if you have a family, you would need the stability of a family center for your children. But I do mean that anything beyond need, and need sometimes includes things beyond physical needs too, anything beyond need tends to become burdensome. If you have it, you have to take care of it. There is great freedom in simplicity of living. And after I began to feel this, I found harmony in my life between inner and outer well-being. It reminds me of Swami Vivekananda. When he first came uh, to the West, he got on a ship and he had been used to roaming about India with just the clothes on his back and uh, a number of books he lugged around in a bag. And suddenly he was traveling in a big ship with two big trunks full of various items of clothing. And it was a real problem for him. He wrote to one of his uh, uh, friends or disciples that uh, he's completely unaccustomed to taking care of so many things. And it was a real problem for him. It was just two trunks, mind you, but it was a real problem for him. Next, Peace Pilgrim discusses four purifications. These are all, we can almost see these as the yamas and niyamas of Peace Pilgrim. The first one is such a simple thing, she says. It is the purification of the body. This has to do with my, this had to do with my physical living habits. It was five years after I felt a complete willingness to give my life that I began to take care of my bodily temple. Five years. She says, you'd think purification of the body might be the first area in which people would be willing to work. But from practical experience, I've discovered it's often the last because it might mean getting rid of some of our bad habits and there is nothing we cling to more tenaciously. Second purification, purification of thought. She says, if you realized how powerful your thoughts are, you would never think a negative thought. I don't eat junk foods, she says, and I don't think junk thoughts. Let me tell you, junk thoughts can destroy you even more quickly than junk food. It isn't enough just to do right things and say right things. You must also think right things before your life can come into harmony. I'm reminded here of Swami Vivekananda's Statement in Raja Yoga, every vicious thought will rebound. Every thought of hatred, which you may have thought, in a cave even, is stored up and will one day come back to you with tremendous power in the form of some misery here. So purification of thought. Then purification of desire. What are the things you desire? Peace Pilgrim asks us. Do you desire superficial things like pleasures, new items of wearing apparel or new household furnishings or cars? 
Since you are here to get yourself in harmony with the laws that govern human conduct and with your part in the scheme of things, your desires should be focused in this direction. Then there's one more purification, purification of motive. What is your motive for whatever you may be doing, she asks. If it is pure greed or self-seeking or the wish for self-glorification, I would say don't do that thing. But that isn't easy, because we tend to do things with very mixed motives. Good and bad motives all mixed together. She gives a very interesting example about an architect she met while she was on her wandering. And he was a very good architect, but he was uh, doing good work, but with the wrong motive. And he had, as she said, she had, he had worked himself into an illness trying to make a lot of money and keep ahead of the Joneses. So she got him to do little things for service. She said, I talked to him about the joy of service and knew that after he had experienced this, he could never go back into really self-centered living. So when she saw him again after a few years, she says she could hardly recognize him. He was such a changed man, but he was still an architect. He was drawing a plan, and he talked to me about it. You see, he said, I'm designing it this way to fit into their budget, and then I'll set it on their plot of ground to make it look nice. His motive was to be of service to the people he drew plans for. He was a radiant and transformed person. She says, I've met a few people who had to change their jobs in order to change their lives, but I've met many more people who merely had to change their motive to service in order to change their lives. Then we have the four relinquishments. Peace Pilgrim's first relinquishment is the relinquishment of self-will. And she says, once you've made that relinquishment, you've found inner peace. Those who have overcome self-will and become instruments to do God's work, can accomplish tasks which are seemingly impossible, but they experience no feeling of self-achievement. She was a real karma yogi in this sense also. She said that one of the, one of the most common questions people would ask her is, well, you're doing this peace pilgrimage, you seeing any results? She would always answer, I've never asked to see any results. I leave the results in God's hands. They may not even be manifest in my lifetime, but eventually they will become manifest. Her second relinquishment is the relinquishment of the feeling of separateness. We begin feeling very separate and judging everything as it relates to us, as though we were, we were the center of the universe. In reality, of course, we are all cells in the body of humanity. So these teachings are little hints of her Advaitic outlook, her non-dualistic outlook. The whole thing is a totality, she says. It's only from that higher viewpoint that you can know what it is to love your neighbor as yourself. Her third relinquishment is the relinquishment of all attachments. Attachments to things, attachments to places, and attachments to people. 
No one is truly free who is still attached to material things or to places or to people. Material things must be put into their proper place. They are there for use. But when they have outlived their usefulness, be ready to relinquish them and perhaps pass them on to someone who does need them. Anything that you cannot relinquish when it has outlived its usefulness possesses you. And in this materialistic age, a great many of us are possessed by our possessions. We are not free. Her last relinquishment, the relinquishment of all negative feelings. She says, I want to mention just one negative feeling which the nicest people still experience, and that is worry. Worry is not concern, which would motivate you to do everything possible in a situation. Worry is a useless mulling over of things we cannot change. So, in sum, Peace Pilgrim's preparations. Four four preparations. Take a right attitude toward life. Bring our lives into harmony with the laws that govern this universe by living good beliefs. Find our special place in the life pattern and simplify life. Her four purifications, purification of body, thought, desire, and motive. And four relinquishments, self-will, feeling of separateness, all attachments, and all negative feelings. Peace Pilgrim's spiritual practice, or, or if we can think of some kind of meditative practice, for her was her walking. Walking was for her a prayer discipline. She says, in the beginning, I undertook my walking not only to contact people, I undertook it as a prayer discipline to keep me concentrated on my prayer for peace. I hadn't learned yet to pray without ceasing. After the first few years, the prayer discipline was completely unnecessary because I had learned to pray without ceasing. And I'd like to close by reading a couple of paragraphs in which she describes the experience of illumination, her first experience of illumination after so much struggle. There were hills and valleys, lots of hills and valleys, in that spiritual growing up period. Then, in the midst of the struggle, there came a wonderful mountaintop experience, the first glimpse of what the life of inner peace was like. That came when I was out walking in the early morning. All of a sudden, I felt very uplifted, more uplifted than I had ever been. I remember I knew timelessness, and spacelessness, and lightness. I did not seem to be walking on the earth. There were no people or even animals around, but every flower, every bush, every tree seemed to wear a halo. There was a light emanation around everything, and flecks of gold fell like slanted rain through the air. This experience is sometimes called the illumination period. The most important part of it was not the phenomena. The important part of it was the realization of the oneness of all creation. Not only all human beings. I knew before that all human beings are one. 
But now I knew also a oneness with the rest of creation, the creatures that walk the earth and the growing things of the earth, the air, the water, the earth itself, and, most wonderful of all, a oneness with that which permeates all and binds all together and gives, gives life to all, a oneness with that which many would call God. I have never felt separate since. We'll take a couple of moments of reflection. Om Dhyao Shanti Andariksham Shanti Prithivi Shanti Apah Shanti Oshadhaya Shanti Vanaspataya Shanti Vishvedeva Shanti Brahma Shanti Sarvam Shanti Shanti Reva Shanti Sama Shanti Redhi Om Shanti 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 Unto the heavens peace, in the sky peace, upon the earth peace, within the waters peace, unto the plants peace, in the trees peace, with the devas peace. Brahman itself is peace, to all, everything, everywhere peace. May that peace, true peace, be ours. Om peace, peace, peace.